Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Well, this is going to be fun. This is going to be a little confusing for people because guess what? I am not Amanda. I am the person that Amanda is often mistaken for and I am often mistaken for her. This is Tamara Cherry. You thought you got rid of me yesterday. I was filling in for Evan Solomon on his show all week uh, and then decide to step in for Amanda somewhat last minute today. She just had a, everything is fine. She just had another uh, work commitment that she had to tend to. But I love to see, uh, I love to open up the um, the chat box on the uh, the News Talk 1010 and iHeartRadio text board um, and see the messages, the last messages from the day before. So the first message in the chat box today was the last message that was sent yesterday during Evan's show. And it says, yay, bye, Tammy. This is from a person that doesn't like to hear me on the radio. So yeah, this is Tamara Cherry. Filling in for Amanda Galbraith. We do have an excellent show for you today. You will see what I'm talking about over the next two hours. But first, the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol held their final public hearing of the summer last night, painting a picture of a president who refused to act until it was clear that the mob had failed to disrupt the Congress session that was confirming his election defeat. This even as the lives of police officers, of members of Congress, of Donald Trump's own vice president were under threat. Representative Elaine Luria was leading last night's hearing. Mr. Hirschman turned to Mr. Cipollone and said, the president didn't want to do anything. Further, Elaine Luria said that with each step, of President, then President Trump's plan. He betrayed his oath of office and was derelict in his duty. By he, of course, she was speaking about Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States. A bipartisan Senate report released five months after the January 6th attack connected seven deaths to the event. But a month later, two police officers who'd been there that day died by suicide, bringing the total number of officer suicides to four. Last night, from the clip that you just heard that was alluded to, we heard about a conversation between senior advisor Eric Hirschman and top White House lawyer Pat Cipollone on January 6th. The conversation, said Representative Luria, was about a pending call from the Pentagon seeking to coordinate on the response to the attack. And Mark, we don't need to play that clip just because we've already played it, but essentially the president didn't want to do anything. President Trump knew what was happening at the Capitol. The violence was playing out on White House TVs. But witnesses testified that Trump did not make any phone calls to law enforcement or to the Pentagon to stop the mob. He didn't call the Secretary of Defense. He didn't call the Attorney General. He didn't call the Secretary of Homeland Security. He didn't ask for the National Guard. Instead, how was President Donald Trump spending his time that afternoon? He was calling senators to encourage them to delay or object to the certification. Here's Representative Adam Kinzinger on a conversation between Trump and his chief of staff. The president resisted writing, stay peaceful in a tweet. He told Mark Meadows that the rioters were doing what they should be doing, and the rioters understood they were doing what President Trump wanted them to do. We heard during the hearing last night that as the mob was entering the building, the Secret Service held Vice President Pence for 13 minutes 
as they work to secure a safe path to a secure location. Now remember, we've already learned that members of the mob were calling for the vice president's head. Last night, we heard audio from the Secret Service radios that day. If we lose uh, any more time, we may have, we may lose the ability to, to leave. So if we're going to leave, we need to do it now. They've gained access to the second floor, and I've got public about five feet from me down here below. So yeah, that, that, those are members of the Secret Service who were protecting the vice president. And you could hear the panic in their voices as members of the public who had breached the Capitol were about five feet from them now. Here's testimony from a Secret Service agent who had been monitoring that radio traffic from his colleagues on the vice president's detail that day. Members of the VP detail at this time were starting to fear for their own lives. Um, there were a lot of, there was a lot of yelling, um, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of very personal calls um, over the radio. So uh, it was disturbing. I don't like talking about it, but um, uh, that there were calls to um, say goodbye to family members, so on and so forth. It was getting. For, for whatever the reason was on the ground, the VPT tell thought that this was about to get very ugly. If you couldn't make out what he was saying, he said that, first of all, it was difficult for him to talk about what he heard on the radio from his colleagues that day. But there were calls from Secret Service personnel to say goodbye to their family members. Just think about that for a second. The House Committee also spoke with a Capitol Police officer who was outside at the time, describing Senator Josh Hawley raising his fist in solidarity with the protesters who were amassing at the security gate. The gesture riled up the crowd. But of course, the senator was making this gesture from a safe space. He was protected by the officers and by the barriers. Last night, the House Committee showed a video of that same senator a little later in the afternoon after things had gotten really ugly. The video showed him fleeing from the Capitol to safety. Even after the attack on the Capitol, Trump still refused to admit the election was over. This is an outtake from the recorded message his office would release publicly the next day. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent our country. And if you broke the law, you can't say that. I'm not gonna, you, I already said you will pay. Here's another outtake. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? Here's Representative Liz Cheney summing up last night's hearing. You saw an American president faced with a stark and unmistakable choice between right and wrong. There was no ambiguity, no nuance. Donald Trump made a purposeful choice to violate his oath of office, and every American must consider this. Can a president who is willing to make the choices Donald Trump made during the violence of January 6th ever be trusted with any position of authority in our great nation again? I know that while many of you are paying close attention to these January 6th hearings, others are rolling their eyes or yelling at the radio. What's your point? Why does this matter here? And as I glance over to my other monitor that has all the texts coming up, I see a lot of those messages from some of the same old players rolling in. And the reason is this, because there were members of far right 
and white nationalist groups here in Canada who wanted the so-called Freedom Convoy to be Canada's version of January 6th. Some called for a, quote, lynching of the Prime Minister and for Canadians' military to stand behind them. Do I think these sorts of views are representative of most of those involved in the so-called Freedom Convoy movement? Absolutely not. And thankfully, the occupation of Ottawa and various other places in this country earlier this year remained relatively peaceful compared to what we saw on the U.S. Capitol. But we cannot forget that even though the very angry pool of people in Canada then, and to a very real extent now, are not extremists, there are extremists who see them as an opportunity to capitalize on anger, to capitalize on frustration, and to put our democracy in jeopardy. Now, here's the thing. Donald Trump clearly wants to be president again. He hasn't officially announced it yet, but he's repeatedly hinted at the idea as a strong possibility. And while new polling suggests that he may be losing support from Republican voters amidst these January 6 hearings, polls have generally shown him as the clear frontrunner for the Republican Party's nomination. Imagine if he gets the nomination. Imagine if he gets elected. What would that mean for American democracy? And what could that mean for our own democracy here in Canada? We can't pretend that what happened on January 6th was irrelevant to us. We cannot pretend that it isn't relevant to us still. It's become abundantly clear that right-wing extremism and populism is gaining acceptance in Canada, not by the majority, but it's gaining acceptance no less. And by all accounts, it appears that the next leader of the official opposition will be someone who has been, as Toronto Star columnist Bob Hepburn noted a few weeks ago, milking this gathering storm. So we have a guest coming up after the break who's going to walk us through uh, a little bit more of this January hearing last night and why it's important, why we in Canada should be paying attention. So please stay tuned. And we've got a lot of other fun stuff, a lot of other fun stuff. That's not fun stuff. We've got other fun stuff coming up later on in the show. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Amanda Galbraith on Free For All Friday. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And I am Tamara Cherry, filling in for Amanda Galbraith on Free For All Friday today. Thanks for having me. Oh boy, did the text board light up with that last segment. Many people deciding that I am a far left extremist. I will state for the record again that I do not subscribe to any particular political party in Canada. In fact, I think I've voted for almost all of them at all levels of government. So thank you very much. Uh, But there are a few people who are, are piping in and showing some concern about the revelations in the uh, the House committee hearing south of the border in regards to the January 6th attack on the Capitol there and what that could mean for us up here in Canada. Now, before we get to our next guest, I'm just going to reiterate that even after the January 6th, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, then-President Donald Trump still refused to face the music. He essentially said, in, in uh, actually, Mark, can you just play clip for Trump, please? But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? 
So that was an outtake from a recorded message his office would release publicly the day after a mob attacked the Capitol. He did not want to say the election was over. It was played last night during the final public hearing of the summer for the House Committee investigating that attack. Joining us now is a man for whom that clip and many others played during the dramatic hearing last night likely came as little surprise. Lawrence Douglas is a professor of law at Amherst College in Massachusetts and the author of Will He Go? Trump and the looming election meltdown in 2020. But Professor Douglas, first, thanks for joining us. Um, rather than rather than me assuming, why don't you tell us what your reaction was to last night's hearing? Uh, I thought it was, uh, again, it was a, uh, a powerful um, piece of, um, of almost kind of like a documentary miniseries. That's kind of what I almost think of this um, these uh, public hearings as uh, akin to. And it seems like they're doing a very good and responsible job of building a powerful case against uh, President Trump. And they're doing so, you know, as you saw last night, by relying exclusively on um, on Republican sources. That is, no one can say that, oh, well, these are just kind of anti-Trump material that they're drumming up. Um, you know, they're building the case uh, against Trump by showing that um, people within his own administration, within his own staff, within his own family, uh, tried to get him to respond to the violence on the Capitol on January 6th, and he refused. And I think one of the big talking points from last night was um, it wasn't a failure of action on his part. It was he chose not to act. It is, he chose not to act because he, in a sense, approved of this uh, violent attack on a coordinate branch of government for the purposes of trying to overturn a democratic and fair election. So spell that out for us then, uh, Professor Douglas, um, because there might be some people, and I, I've sort of gone through some of this a little bit earlier on the show, but there might be some people out there who say, well, he didn't realize the extent of what was going on. How can we say that he endorsed it? What exactly was happening in the White House when the Capitol was under siege? Were, were they watching what was happening? Like, did, did President Trump know exactly what was happening? And if so, how was he spent choosing to spend his time? So we know that he was uh, kind of, that is, after he gave his a speech in the ellipse, um, in which he expressed his ambition to uh, march with the, uh, the protesters um, and the insurrectionists to the Capitol. And we know that what, that wasn't simply a rhetorical ploy on his part. We now know that he was really um, interested in doing so. And it was really only the result of the intervention of the Secret Service uh, that he didn't end up going to the Capitol, which again would have been a, a truly um, extraordinary action on the part of the president uh, to disrupt the uh, proceedings of Congress. Um, so we know that he kind of then slunk to his uh, dining room uh, in the West Wing, and he was watching Fox News. And Fox News was full of the reports of the unfolding violence. We know that um, he was inundated with... Um, efforts on the part of those closest to him to get him to make some kind of statement to stop the violence. So it's not as if he was uh, in some kind of um, bubble unaware of what was unfolding. I mean, everyone was basically aware of what was unfolding on January 6th who was looking, watching television. And he wasn't just watching television. He was also getting uh, uh, increasingly desperate messages from those closest uh, to him and his staff, um, 
uh, urging him to respond, and he, he categorically refused to do so for 187 minutes. And, and as we heard from that, the, the clip that I played just before introducing you um, there, even the next day, he, he was re- kind of refusing, well, still outright refusing really to, to face the music. Now, I have, I have text messages coming into the show right now, um, and I'll just remind our listeners that we're speaking with Lawrence Douglas, who is the author of Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. And, and Professor Douglas, there are people texting into the show right now that that like to think that we are just attacking President Trump. We are, as some people have said, anti-Trumpers, that we are, you know, taking the the liberal or democratic bias, even though you have already pointed out uh, very eloquently that the, these hearings are relying on Republican sources. Um, what would you say in terms of like stepping away from the man Trump? What is the significance of this hearing in terms of democracy in the United States? Well, I mean, democracy requires that the citizenry be informed. I mean, you can't have people make in- informed choices uh, unless they have reliable information. And what this uh, hearing is attempting to do is to supply with the American people with a reliable, truthful account of an effort orchestrated by the President of the United States to overturn a fair election. Now, if there are people out there who continue to believe that the election was fraudulent, then it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's somewhat sad, but ultimately, um, you know, people need to try to rely on adequate, and truthful, and reliable sources of information. Now, we do know that there are many people out there, there are many people within the media the right-wing media in the United States, and we know that there are Republican politicians as well for opportunistic uh, reasons to continue to support the the big lie that there was widespread election fraud. Uh, This despite the fact that 60 uh, courts uh, refused to accept that claim. Uh, This included federal judges uh, who had been appointed by Trump himself. So I, I think it, at, at some point it becomes very hard to uh, simply dismiss the findings of federal judges who were appointed by Trump uh, to dismiss the conclusions of his own attorney general, Bill Barr, who described it as BS, the idea that there was widespread fraud, the fact that Ivanka Trump, uh, Trump herself accepted that uh, her father had lost the election, I, I just don't know what kind of evidence people need in order to finally come around to the insight that this was a free and fair election that was absent the kind of systematic fraud that conspiracy theorists and the president himself uh, continue to, um, to circulate. Professor Douglas, we have like 30 seconds left. If, if you could just respond to this next one very quickly. Why should the world, why should Canada be concerned about what we're hearing in these hearings? Why should we be paying attention? Well, I mean, obviously, I, I think all of America's allies uh, would be, uh, should be paying attention, particularly in as much as um, it's possible that Donald Trump will run again in 2024. And uh, I think a, a Trump victory in 2024 would be nothing short 
of a catastrophe for the United States and catastrophe for all nations around the world um, that um, uh, hope to live in a world with a um, healthy democratic future. Lawrence Douglas, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Professor Douglas is the author of Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. And I agree we should be paying close attention and be very worried if uh, this is a man that can run for president again. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Amanda Galbraith coming up after the break. Monarch butterflies. Why should we, we be worried about them these days? You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Amanda Galbraith today and reflecting on a road trip I did with my family. We're almost three years ago to the day on July 25th, 2019, our family of five pulled into the Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota to stretch our legs for a few hours. We were on a three-day road trip from Ajax, Ontario, where we lived at the time, to Regina, Saskatchewan, where we live now. There are so many exciting things for kids at the, the kids at the mall, but an unexpected delight was an installation that had been unveiled just a few months earlier to celebrate Earth Day. It was an art installation of a majestic 30-foot monarch butterfly surrounded by more than 300 smaller butterf- butterflies suspended from a skylight in the mall. Not only was and is this installation magnificent, but it was so special because my kids, like probably every other kid out there, love butterflies. And the monarch butterfly, the orange and black butterfly we all know so well, is what comes to mind for most people when we think of butterflies. It was magical. Well, it turns out that this once familiar site in Canadian gardens that has been migrating monarchs flying, uh, migrating, migrating monarchs are flying closer to extinction. With us now to talk about this uh, development that we first heard about this week, Dr. Ryan Norris. He's an ecologist at the University of Guelph and a biologist. His research largely focuses on migratory birds and butterflies. Dr. Norris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. What is, of course, what what's going on with our beloved monarchs? Um, well, What's happened is the um, the IUCN has listed the monarchs as uh, endangered, put them on their red list, and that's an international, um, you know, that's an international designation. It doesn't. What it doesn't mean, though, is that they've been listed federally um, as endangered, so or provincially. Um, so I think it serves to raise awareness of the state of the monarchs um, currently in North America, but ultimately it doesn't have um, you know any any teeth to change things uh, directly. So the the, the group that the, um, that we heard from yesterday, they we, I mean, there's all sorts of different numbers that we see flying around. No pun intended. Um, but some some are saying that uh, the population of monarch butterflies in North America has declined between 22 and 72 percent over 10 years. I mean, that is a pretty significant 
uh, gap in there. Uh, also, um, there was another researcher in the United States saying that the population of monarch butterflies in eastern United States has declined between 85% and 95% since the 1990s. What are we seeing in Canada specifically when it comes to these butterflies? Okay, well, the reason why there's, first of all, the reason why, part of the reason why there's so many numbers there is because I think the 22 to 75% is trying to capture two different populations, one that's east of the Rockies and one that's west of the Rockies. Mm. Um, so our population obviously is east of the Rockies. And that population overwinters at, um, a, in a very restricted range in central Mexico high elevation and so all of the monarchs um, in the last generation that are between rocky mountains and the atlantic seaboard and all the way up north to us um, move to mexico um, en masse in the fall and that's where they're counted uh that's where the numbers are that's you know because they're concentrated so much um they can be estimated the whole population size can be estimated and that's what's done every year so to answer your question about how Canadian monarchs are doing, it's a little bit hard to tell. I mean, we have some counts of on, on during the summer from up here, and but our best and most reliable count really of the whole population is down in Mexico every winter. Mm. If that makes sense. <laughs> yes, it does. Okay, so so then what is that telling us? I mean, I guess, but down yeah. in Mexico, then we're not just we're not just getting Canadian numbers. Then obviously they don't wear they don't carry little yeah. Canadian flags, I suppose, yeah. during their yeah. migrations down south. Okay, so what like what is your argument then? Because I understand that like the monarch butterfly now, like they're competing against more than forty one thousand other threatened species of animals, insects, and plants around the world. Um, many more species, of course, expected to join them as climate change uh, industry and other fa factors uh, decimate their habitat. Tats, what would yeah. your argument be for us to focus in on these butterflies? Why are they important? Why should we care about their their dwindling, dwindling population? Well, I'm not sure it's so much of a competition, although some people may may depict it that way. But when you, I mean, when you say the cut of forty one thousand, that is referring to what the IUCN has designated as, you know, red-listed those species. That's the number of species mm -hmm. they've red-listed around the world, right? Yes. So, um, you know, our, the, the, the people in charge of developing the policy for conserving um, our species in Canada is the, is, are the provincial and federal governments, right? So. Yep. Um, when the, when a species is listed as endangered, a number of things happen, and um, a number of resources then get allocated to that species, um, hopefully. Um, what hasn't happened here, though, is that the, the monarch has not been uplisted as endangered federally or provincially. So we've got this international body saying, okay, monarch, we think monarchs are endangered now, and now everybody is kind of like waiting to see what the federal government w will do. You know, usually the provinces act after the federal government in these cases. So everybody's waiting to see what the federal government will do about this. And um, they've had recommendations on their table for a while about what should be done with the monarch. You know, what, what listing the monarch should have. And that is the recommendations are 
to put it as endangered and that nothing's been done yet about it. Now, will this IUCN designation do something? Potentially, yes. So to circle back to your question, sorry, you know, it's not. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. This is all insightful. It's not necessarily, um, you know, monarchs versus the 41 other, th- 41 other thousand species, you know, that are at risk. Because, of course, it's mainly a federal issue, federal provincial issue. And, and we, sh- we should point out that in the United States as well, which uh, obviously environmental groups um, are paying close attention to this there also, the United States has also not listed monarch butterflies under their Endangered Species Act, but several environmental groups there believe that it should be listed. Okay, so then what is your argument yeah. to get Canada and then the provinces to, to start paying attention to this issue? Well, I mean, it's... <clears throat> I mean, I think this IUCN listing is a good way to bring it up again. Um, the government has their own committee that they populate with experts, and um, they take the recommendations from that committee um, about whether a species should be endangered or not. Now, that committee's in 2016, eight years ago, that committee recommended that monarchs should be listed as endangered. And nothing's been done about it yet. So hmm. um, what do we need to do? I don't know. Things like this international... Res- oh, do I still have you? Have we, have we just lost uh, Dr. Ryan Norris? Okay, Dr. Ryan Norris, I don't know what happened with the line there, uh, but we were just about to lose you anyway. Um, this this international designation, maybe it will put a push on the federal government, maybe it won't. At the end of the day, though, I think it's important to note that these are not just beautiful, you know, fuzzy little insects that that we've all grown up adoring, at least east of the Rockies, as many of us are. Um, they are an essential part of our ecosystem. And that is what I was uh, hoping to get uh, Dr. Norris there from the uh, University of Guelph to to get in a little bit. Um, but when we talk about pollinators, all that stuff, I shouldn't get into any of the fancy footwork because I am not an ecologist or biologist or anything like that. But I do think it is interesting. I saw a lot of people on Twitter yesterday um, talking about how we should be concerned about this. I think it's just because they like this iconic butterfly, how it looks. But there are reasons beyond that. Coming up, we're going to be talking to our latest mayor in the cross-Canada road trip that Amanda has been hosting every month. Which city will we go to? Well, it's one that many of you have already heard of. We'll hear what that mayor thinks we should be paying attention to this summer. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I'm actually not Amanda Galbraith. Surprise, I'm Tamara Cherry, somebody who is often confused with Amanda Galbraith. So how fitting that I am filling in for her today on Free For All Friday. Well, the Cross Canada Road Trip is a 13-week segment running until the beginning of September, which features a capital city each week. You may already be uh, familiar with this segment Amanda's been doing. What are the city's hidden gems? Best places to eat? Well, we have you covered. Last week's segment was with Mayor Alti, Mayor of Yellowknife. 
This week we have a mayor that, you know, I'm so grateful to have him on the show because he just, he has not been in the news at all this week. Am I right, mayor? Let's see if anyone can guess who it is. I don't recall being in the news myself, but... uh... (laughs) That is, of course, the voice of Mayor John Tory in the city of Toronto. Yeah, mayoral politics, it hasn't been a topic of conversation at all. But we're not here to talk about that, are we, Mayor? We're here to talk about all the things in a city that you and I both love to bits and pieces, so many great places to eat. So why don't you just start out by telling me, what are your favorite dining digs in the great city of Toronto? Well, none of them are necessarily the best known, uh, but I would say um, there's a little place on Bloor Street called Bar Mercurio. It's like a bistro. It's wonderful. Uh, there's a new place with spectacular architecture called Gusto 501, which is in the east side of the city, uh, and it's it's terrific. Uh, there's a, a fascinating place for somebody who's visiting uh, called the Fishman uh, Lobster Clubhouse, and it's up uh, sort of in the northeast end of the city, and it's just extraordinary uh, these seafood platters they bring you with like lobsters and and huge crabs and so on. It's really quite extraordinary. And I'll mention one more, which is Aloe Bar, which is in Yorkville, and they have uh, fabulous hamburgers and French fries. I mean, it's a, it, there's lots more food than that, but I have something pretty simple when I go there. So there would be there before for starters. I am. Um, I'm kind of regretting asking you that question because I'm talking to you from Saskatchewan and it is eight minutes to 11 o'clock this morning. And the first thing I'm going to be doing is having lunch after this, uh, this show. And you've made me quite hungry indeed. And I haven't tried out any of those restaurants. So thank you very much. Uh, lobster is certainly not something that comes to mind when I think of Toronto. So I may need to check that out. What about hiking? Are you into hiking, Mayor Tory? Do, would not you recommend but- any places for people who want to get outside? Yes, I'm not so much into sort of hiking, and in Toronto it's pretty flat, so you're not going to be finding anything too complicated. But there are some places I think people could go who have not, even for local residents, uh, who haven't seen many of these places, but also for visitors. Um, One is the Rouge National Park. It was created by the Government of Canada, and it's the largest uh, urban national park in the world. Uh, I forget the size of it, but it's just gigantic, and it's very, very much, uh, you know, back to nature in the middle of a huge city. And it's something well worth seeing, and I'll bet most Torontonians have not seen it, let alone uh, visitors. Another place, Tamara, is the residential section of the Toronto Island. Uh, people know there's a big park at the Toronto, mm. Toronto Island, but there's also a neighborhood over there with about 700 people living there. And it's very quaint. There's no cars, of course. And uh, it's these sort of quaint houses, and you can sort of walk down what are not streets. They're really just uh, like um, pathways that go through where the houses are. And it's uh, on the lake, of course, right on the water on this island. And it's something well worth seeing. Um, and I guess if I mentioned a third, it might be to check out the public art. Uh, we've got public art all, all over the city, and many, many Torontonians, again, you know, wouldn't know, for example, that in the west end of the city, there's like six blocks in a row where the sides of buildings have had huge mur- murals put on them. And there's a lot of those kinds of things you can find at, at toronto.ca that you can tour around and see uh, that public art. So the Rouge National Park, uh, the residential section of the Toronto Island, uh, our beaches, which are, you know, we have some of the biggest freshwater beaches in the world, and people don't think of Toronto that way, but they're well worth seeing uh, to the east and the west of the downtown uh, and I'll mention the Riverdale Farm which if you have kids is yes. a great little 
farm. I take my children and now my grandchildren there. And it's ne- even though there's only one cow and a couple of pigs and chickens, you know, <laughs> there's, there's sort of one of everything. But I think the kids get a big kick out of it. Little kids. I mean, how many cows, how many piglets do those little tykes need to see, really? It's funny you, you mentioned Riverdale Park because, uh, or Riverdale Farm, because when I was just thinking about like my favorite views in Toronto, I mean, first Scarborough Bluffs comes to mind. But then also yeah. I think about uh, being a TV reporter in Toronto for many years. One of the places that uh, people may not realize, but reporters in Toronto often go live from when they want a nice view of the city is Riverdale Park. It's one of those places yep. where you can just sit up at the top. You can see a nice view of the skyline of downtown Toronto, but it's also just a nice, quiet section of the city to relax. And in and in the wintertime, people Good aren't really doing there. road trips then Good to go uh, tobogganing. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Are you one for live music, Mayor Tory? Yes, uh, I am. And, and uh, there's a couple of, I mean, for example, there's uh, Kensington uh, Market, which is good, great to see in and of itself. It's, a, it's again, it's a very kind of bohemian, um, you know, section of stores and little markets and fish uh, food stores and clothing stores. But it also has a couple of live um, music venues. I mean, Toronto, you know, quite literally has hundreds of uh, music, small music venues and large ones. Uh, but uh, some of the smaller ones will be found in places like Queen Street West, uh, Geary Avenue. So, so again, it's almost too much to sort of mention here, but there are uh, a lot of places you can go to see a lot of live music. And we've been trying to help those by giving them a big tax break because they had a tough time during the pandemic. Are we getting into politics here, Mayor Tory? Nope. Like, do we need to start? <laughs> I'm just joking. Okay, so, I mean, I think what, one of the biggest things that people think about Toronto and traveling these days, uh, Pearson Airport, like, I don't want to go anywhere near that place these days, but is there anything else that you could point out that would perhaps convince somebody to pack a bag to get on an airplane during the hellish air travel of late and to actually fly into the city of Toronto? Well, yes. I mean, I would say it's the festivals in the summertime. I mean, the places I've mentioned, I mean, going to the Toronto Island is like magic. You stand there, uh, you know, when you go, get over mm-hmm. there, and you can either be standing in a big park with a children's amusement park there, by the way, or you can be standing in that neighborhood I made reference to and look back and, you know, only what seems like a few feet away or a few meters away is, uh, you know, the fourth biggest city in North America. And you can't hear the noise. You can see the city. Um, and there's the sports that go on here. We've got, you know, the Blue Jays playing and doing fairly well. Uh, there are the festivals. I mean, we've got the Pride's already over, but the Caribbean Carnival's coming up. Um, mm-hmm. There's great f- festivals of all kinds happening through the month of August and the rest of July. The Filipino, a big a taste of Manila. Uh, you know, there, there's just something for everybody, and those are, are absolutely terrific. Um, and, you know, there's just miles and miles and miles now, or kilometers, I guess we're supposed to say, of, of uh, bike trails uh, that can take you all the way from the farthest reaches of the northeast part of the city right downtown. And, and you can get a bike from our bike share program. So there's a lot of things to do. Uh, and you can get here other than through Pearson. You can get here on the train. You can get here through the Island Airport, which is right mm-hmm. downtown from many places in Canada. And you can so, get there by car. I've done I've done the drive a couple times from Saskatchewan. Yep. It's a beautiful drive, especially through northern Ontario. I got to say, Mayor Tory, um, before I moved to Toronto, gosh, like close to close to two decades ago from Saskatchewan, all, all I would really hear about the place was, it, was that it was the center of the universe. But it was certainly a city that I fell in love with and very tearfully said goodbye to a couple of years ago. One that I love to go back to and everything you're saying about that city right now, I've got to say to people from outside of Toronto who might be Toronto haters, it's all true. There, there's so many magical places to explore. There are so many uh, delicious restaurants, so many great people watching spots and just so many wonderful people. So I am happy that 
we, that we're able to, sh- to showcase a city and a, and a mayor that has not been in the news cycle at all this week. But yeah. uh, but we're not we're it's not a, here you talking know what it about is, Mara, It's a very humane big city. It's the most diverse city really in the world, is. which means our food scene yeah. is unbelievable in terms of authentic yeah. food you can get from all over the world. And there's a huge arts and culture, you know, kind of uh, you know presence here that uh, just means anybody can have a good time with festivals and so on. And yeah, it's big, and people don't like that in the rest of the country. But there's lots to do here, and everybody is actually very friendly, notwithstanding what uh, people are told. I like it too. Thank you very much, Meritory, right. for your time. Coming up, we got our you two things. We got our free for all five, free for all Friday panel coming up after the break. You're listening to Free for All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. That's me, Tamara Cherry. You thought that you got rid of me yesterday after I was done filling in for Evan Solomon. But here I am for one more kick of the can, and am I ever happy to be here with the two panelists that we have lined up for the next hour. Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator, former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin, and Scott Reed's good friend, if I recall correctly, Mark Mendelson, CTV crime analyst and former Toronto homicide detective. I think I'm just going to let you guys have at it. Just go. I'll be back let's, in an hour. Let's not cheapen the phrase friend, okay? I mean, it has great <laughs> meaning to many people. Let's not uh, diminish its, uh, its value. And I go, I'm, guys- I'm just going to go. I'm going to go with acquaintance and just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> now, our listeners to Evan's show yesterday may recall that Scott was joining us uh, allegedly in his boxers next to an open refrigerator as he basked in the glory of Toronto's 40 degree or 40 plus degree weather. Are, is everybody fully clothed today? Am I am I OK to say that on air? I, I am. And I'm, that, that visual of Scott in his boxers, is, it, I didn't sleep all night, but I'll, I'll get I'll get over it. I'm in therapy now. I understand it'll take about three weeks, and I can rid that thing of my brain. So, and I've I've moved on to the stand up freezer. So I'm I'm fine. <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, time to get into some serious topics with you, uh, two jokesters. Uh, topic one: The federal government is proposing to use an industry specific cap and trade system or a modified carbon pricing system to set a feeling. I set a ceiling rather for emissions from the oil and gas sector and drive them down almost 40% by the end of this decade. Now, this is a topic that we didn't really hear or talk much about this week because there was so much other stuff going on, but it's a topic that uh, made the news literally as the world is uh, on fire, severe heat waves in Europe. Uh, We've got wildfires again near Lytton, BC. Um, Scott, I'll start with you. Are you satisfied with our government's response to the global climate emergency? No. Um, I mean, look, you, you can come at it from either standpoint, and I think that it comes up short um, uh, in both ways. And so I think that's the, the great risk here is that this becomes the worst of both worlds, not a soft compromise that people find acceptable. And so what I mean by that is this. If you are looking at these heat waves and if you are preoccupied with what you know many believe to be an existential threat and you say, listen, like, like we... We have no time to waste. We must decarbonize. We must lower emissions. And we can't wait for China to do it or India to do it. We have to do our part, everything within our power to do it right now because it's an existential threat. Then you would have, um, you w- wouldn't be consulting 
Like you, you would say, because there's no real point to consulting at this point. We know these options. We know the cap and trade system and its, its merits and demerits. We know the carbon tax system and its merits and demerits. And we know that industry isn't going to like it. We know that Alberta isn't going to like it. We know whole chunks of the population will or will not like it. So why consult just do? So that's thing number one. Thing number two is if you're not looking at the climate crisis, but rather you're looking at the cost of living crisis, you're going to be equally unhappy with this. And you're going to say, come on, there's no way in hell you're going to get this thing moving, say, you know, by 2030. So that's like what, six years practically in terms of implementing it, rewire a whole of industry across the country, rewire uh, behavioral activities on the part of the entire population. Not going to happen. These targets are not plausible. And therefore, we have to be more focused on the crisis at hand, which is cost of living and inflation. And this will uh, hurt, not help that. And you're not going to be happy. So the risk for the government is that it's going to get it coming and going. It's not a fish nor fowl. I'm going to mix all of my metaphors. And so I really think that, you know, it, it runs the risk that it will bear all the brunt of this plan, but actually get none of the credit because we won't actually be making progress. So I, I think it's a, I think it's a real political stinker. Hmm. I wonder, Mark, uh, you know, one of the things that we discussed on Evan's show a little bit earlier on in the week is uh, there was a New York Star, t- New York Times story on Sunday or Monday that was talking about a recent poll that showed climate change was not really top of mind for Americans lately because inflation had had really taken over and and the pandemic. Like there were so there are so many other uh, big world issues going on right now. The war in Ukraine also. Um, how have you been feeling about climate change lately? Um, and are you satisfied with our government's handling of it? Well, frankly, I'm just I'm just sort of uh, getting my expertise together and just how to do recycle at home. I'm you know I'm bad at this. You know whether it's going in the garbage or the green bin, you know, or 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 the, or the recycle bin. But let's you know Scott's right. I mean, and you're right as well. I mean, there there are places in this world that are burning up either by temperature or by fire. And, you know, and we have to do our part. But when you read this memorandum, and I agree with Scott, and we'll save that clip because I just said that. But um, <laughs> the, 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 when you read the memorandum, this, this, this you know, sort of letter of intent, if you will, that, that they want to put together, I mean, you can, all I see is litigation down the road. I mean, they have lofty goals. Are they attainable? Are they attainable by, by the end of, of this decade? Probably not. But the way they've got it laid out, uh, you know, in terms of the oil and gas companies, they're going to be litigating this. They're going to be litigating this law. They're going to be litigating about uh, getting allowances and having to go to auction to buy more. Um, you know, it, it, I think they're going to create a bureaucratic and a legal morass that is going to slow everything down. And we're never going to reach any attainable goal, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's been identified by 2030. But we have to do our part. There's no question about it. Um, we're, you know, we're, we're seeing, we're seeing uh, problems in Canada, wildfires in BC and in Alberta. Um, these are, these are all big issues that we have to deal with and affect us. You can go to the North Pole now and practically sunbathe on some days. It's so warm mm-hmm. up there. So we've got to realize it's happening, but the goals that have got to be attainable. And I agree with Scott, don't sit and have another discussion about this because it, we're, they're going to get bogged down for months, if not years, with everybody putting their position on the table and then tabling some law. And then everybody's going to go to court with it and it's all going to get appealed. And 2030 will come and go and we may be exactly where we are now. 
Yeah, you know, the first thing I the first text message I see when I look over the text word is global warming scam. This is not a scam, people. Perhaps no. it's time, Mark, to, to throw to some of the clips uh, we have prepared because as scientists say, uh, they're probably the, these global warming pro- problems are probably just going to get worse as climate change intensifies unless countermeasures are taken. Uh, Pateri Talis is the Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization. He spoke at a press conference this week regarding the current heat wave in Europe. Uh, As our listeners may recall, the UK broke its record for highest ever temperature exceeding 40 degrees Celsius for the first time. Here's a little bit of what Talis had to say. It's clip one, Mark. In the future, uh, these kind of heat waves uh, are going to be normal and, uh, and we will see even stronger extremes. Further, he says there's been an increase in heat waves worldwide. The heat waves uh, means uh, also negative uh, impact on agriculture because uh, uh, when we have a higher temperatures, we, can, we have also more evaporation and, and that, that's a bad news. I mean, this is something that affects our lives in so many ways. Uh, just quickly, Scott, how do you think we get the, the haters on board who continue to think that this is a scam and that it, isn't, it shouldn't be a priority for us? Uh, we don't. Uh, we don't get them on board. We don't ask. We just do. But the challenge is this. Um, and here's the fundamental reason I'm fatalistic about, these, uh, about this issue. Um, nobody's willing to take the kinds of sacrifices that are necessary. And Mark says, well, let's make sure the goals are attainable. Sorry, there are no attainable goals. That will make a difference, right? So I can, I can point out and be correct that this plan is not going to get done by 2030. But the, the objective reality is that a plan even more rigorous than this is at minimum necessary if we're going to affect uh, any kind of positive change. So where I come down, and this is a brutal place, where I come down is that we're going to have plans like this, we're going to make progress, it's going to be inadequate. Uh, And the bottom line is that people are unwilling to make the sacrifices politically, personally, economically that are necessary in order to make an effective response to climate change. So we better hope that somebody invents something that just cleans it all up because in the absence of a Desex Mac and a solution, there ain't going to be a solution. Yeah. Mark, in 10 seconds, anything you'd like to add? No, I think, uh, once again, I think, Scott, I think Scott is right. I think that, uh, you know, we're going to have to wait and see. We have to do what we can do. And that's all we can do as a country. And, and you know, enforce people, force other countries, uh, you know, around the world that are part of our pact to, uh, to maintain the same standards that we are. Good luck with that idea. I mean, it's wonderful. It's lofty. But I, I just don't see it happening. I'm Tamara Cherian for Amanda Galbraith. Uh, listen, having this panel right now with two arch nemeses, Scott Reed and Mark Mendelson. We've got much more conversation to come up after the break. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. I love it when people call me special. I appreciate it every time. I am indeed Tamara Cherry, joined by either BFFs or... Uh, what's the? What, is there an acronym for anti-BFFs? Arch nemesis, A-A-N-M? A-B-F-F, yeah. Anti-BFFs. Um, Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator and former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin, and Mark Mendelson, CTV crime analyst and former Toronto homicide detective. In case you guys haven't heard, 
Doug Ford is planning to give the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa veto powers that could only be overruled by a two-thirds vote by their respective city councils. And the question today is, do you think this is a good idea? So by way of background, Doug Ford will give greater U.S.-style powers to the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa. The dramatic change would dilute the influence of municipal councillors, ensuring far more authority for the mayors over financial matters and appointments. Premier Doug Ford was asked earlier this week by reporters whether mayors will have veto power over council. We'll get into the details later, but yes, uh, similar to that, and two-thirds of the council can overrule the, the mayor, but we'll, we'll get more into the, the uh, in-depth once everything goes goes through there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll let the Toronto Star leak the story and then we'll uh, we'll get to the details later. He says mayors have got to be accountable. Allows them the ability, not the power. I always say you have a tremendous amount of uh, responsibility and ability to make the make the appropriate changes. On the Evan Solomon show earlier this week, I spoke with Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford. I asked him what he thought of this. And Bradford told me that we have to be open-minded to these sorts of things. But there are instances, uh, certain votes and, and you know, multi-tenant housing, rooming houses is, is one where it was going to be a very close vote. Uh, and the votes were just not there in this term to do that. Bradford says that we have to be open-minded, but in this instance, he says more mayor, more power from the mayor could be beneficial. And that, that's an example of something where you might want to uh, use those authorities if you have them to build more housing to get that done. You know, in, in my three and a half years on the job as a first-term councillor, I can tell you that one of the biggest impediments to building more housing, more supply, uh, more affordable housing is, in fact, local councillors. Of course, Bradford uh, was not joined by all the councillors in Ottawa and Toronto with his views. In contrast, here's what, what Toronto City Councillor Josh Matlow told John Moore on More in the Morning. I'm not happy about Doug Ford's decision. Um, you know, four years ago, around this time, the Premier made a unilateral decision to change our, our election after it had begun. And now, without consultation with council, without any discussion whatsoever, we just read through the newspaper that the the basic framework of our local democracy might change. Mark Mendelson, what what was your reaction to this? Is Doug Ford making the right move? I hate to say it, but yes, and I'm in I'm in support of it as well. I mean, he 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 cut down the you know the number of councillors, but back I think I guess 2018, and there was a lot of hoopla about it. It went to court. But, I mean, Mayor Tory's come right out and said that with a smaller council, he's actually been more effective and, had, and has developed better and, and more efficient relationships with the councillors. Let's, let's remember, though, Tamara, for a lot of these ridings in Toronto, some of these, these councillors maybe get 16, 17, 18,000 votes. And Mayor Tory got, you know, 400,000 votes. He's voted and is the mayor. And I think every, every large city, and we are a large city, whether we care to admit it or not, you know, the fourth largest in North America, needs a strong mayor. And when you sit and, and, and watch the news and you see all of these grandiose ideas that are coming out and back to committee and back to committee and back to committee and nothing gets done. And then this week, all we're hearing about is putting, putting leashes on cats and today's big thing is oversized billboards. Well, you know what? We're coming out of a pandemic. There's a housing crisis. I just look at where my office is in downtown Toronto. There's shelters all over the place here, and they're dilapidated, and, and they need staff, and they need money, and they need help. And there's homeless people all over the place day and night, and they need some kind of plan to assist them. And, and if, if Mayor Tory has that power to sort of streamline things, make things more efficient, 
not just in, in in the housing area, although that's all that seems to be talked about at this time. But there's all other all other issues in in this city that are huge, that are all post pandemic problems that need to be dealt with as quickly as possible. And if this streamlines it, makes it faster, I'm all for it. And and you know, I, I think one of the reasons we're talking about housing so much is because it is one of those areas uh, that. Uh, Doug Ford, Mayor, Premier Doug Ford and Mayor John Tory have a lot of um, agreement on. Now, Scott, I didn't intentionally do this, at least not like consciously, maybe subconsciously, but I have a feeling I've just put you in a position to say, I agree with Mark. Do you agree with what Mark said? Yeah, it's kind of painful. Well, I mean, he and I aren't together on this cat thing. Um, you know, <laughs> I think he he underplays the importance of putting all cats on leashes. Uh, that's only where I'd start. I, <laughs> I hate and fear cats. So I would put them on leashes and then have them, you know, uh, walk uh, beyond the city limits. But um, look, I, I, yes, there are disadvantages to a strong mayor system. If you wish to make criticisms of it, you can. But in comparison to the system we have, I think it's superior. Um, if our fundamental complaint, and you know, Mark annotated a whole series of areas that feel like they've received less priority than they ought to, but if our fundamental complaint is, why can't we get stuff done? Well, one of the reasons mm-hmm. is that we have a weak mayor system where the mayor alone is elected by everybody in the city, right, to be another counselor, to be a counselor at large, and that's it. That's all the authority that he or she has. And the ability to say, we're going to propose a program, we're going to have a program, we're going to pursue the program, and means that really when you work by full-on consensus, all that you end up doing is lowest common denominator politics. It's, it's something that people can only either all agree on or you can get most people to agree on because you've had to like you know horse trade them something. And it creates little fiefdoms for counselors. And how does a counselor get reelected? By being elected. Incumbency is a massive advantage. So you get these powerful, entrenched counselors who say no to anything that doesn't actually uh, serve their interest in getting reelected. And you can't, you can't, you can't implement a program that thinks of the city as a from a, a city as a whole vision. And so as long as there's an override mechanism. As long as you don't get a renegade mayor, and you all know who we might be thinking of, as long as you don't get a renegade mayor and there's there's checks and balances to say, sorry, no, if an overwhelming majority, a supermajority of councillors say, this is a bad idea, we're not going to go this way, then I say the strong mayor system is better and it sure as heck is worth giving it a try because we've been kicking the can on difficult, we've been kicking the can down the road on difficult decisions here in Toronto for a long time. And uh, I I really think that this could uh, help inject some action and some achievement. Who could have ever predicted that um, Mayor John Tory and Premier Doug Ford would, would be so, um, I I, I don't want to say buddy, buddy, but kind of buddy buddy on on a very important issue facing the city i think it's been remarkable to see how uh their relationship has blossomed over the years like, on like certain- martin and lewis right like you know the mayor's kind of suave and you know yep. kind of you know well-spoken you know the premier's kind of like yeah you know and uh squirrely and loud and goofy <laughs> uh, and and yet the two of them and maybe they don't get along behind the scenes mm-hmm. um but you know golly uh when they got on stage together they do good stuff. Yeah. And it's actually kind of similar to what we saw between the federal and provincial government in Ontario during the pandemic. The best the best communication uh, of the century. Mark, anything else to add on this? 
Well, I don't know about Martin Lewis. I was thinking more about Sonny and Cher, actually. But at the end, <laughs> at, at the end, at the end of the day, I think people that live in this city, just like Scott says, they just want things to get done, and they don't want things to be constantly referred back to some committee that goes into a dark hole, and you don't hear from them for two years. Let's get things moving. He's a progressive mayor. He'll he'll probably get reelected again. And if there are some mm-hmm. council council people who are a little concerned that some of their power is getting cut off at the knees, well that's too bad okay the mm-hmm. fiefdom is gone although you know what it'll it'll be it'll be interesting to see what sort of impact this has on future mayoral races what whether it will impact the the quality of candidates that we have uh entering the field uh we're going to be moving on to our next subject coming up after the break it is uh an, another whether well whether it will get done and that is of course we're talking about the third leadership debate for the consent con- the leadership uh debate for the conservative party of canada it seems like it's going to be done, but not everybody is going to be there. I am Tamara Cherry filling in for Amanda Galbraith on Free For All Friday. Scott Reed, Mark Mandelson joining me. We'll be right back after the break. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. There's always something to talk about in the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership race. And the story that, one of the stories that has been talked about this week, there's been a few, is the their plan to host a third leadership debate in August. But that plan may be crumbling with one candidate refusing to attend and another mulling whether it's really necessary. The campaign for Pierre Poiliev announced Thursday that he will not take part in the debate, facing the consequence of a hefty, I believe it's a $50,000 fine. Jenny Byrne, a senior member of Poiliev's team, released a scathing statement on Twitter explaining his decision. In the statement, Jenny wrote, the party chose a Laurentian elite liberal media personality to moderate the Edmonton debate. Rather than address public policy issues, he asked pointless questions like, Mr. Charest, the very first question I have for you is, what book are you reading now? And what was the last thing that you binge watched on TV? He played a sad trombone sound when a candidate or the audience didn't comply with his stupid rules, Jenny wrote on Twitter. She then went on to say, thousands and thousands of Canadians have come to our campaign events. Our largest event had 7,000 people attend. Jean Charest has had a hard time getting even a couple dozen people to his campaign events. That is why he wants another debate, to use Pierre's popularity with the members to bring out an audience he can't get on his own. No one is interested in a scandal-plagued tax and spend, carbon tax-loving, defeated, liberal premier. Scott Reed, is this what what happened to our virtuous tone of politics? Is this the new tone of politics that we can expect? Are we relics for expecting different? Is this nasty? Well, yeah, it is nasty. Uh, you know, Jenny is a good friend of mine, but listen, here's the truth. Um Sheil and the entire Polyev campaign, um, if they don't like what you're saying, they don't say, Hey, wait a second, I have a different point of view. They grab you by the throat and they drag your windpipe uh, out your other end and that's uh what they did here i mean you, you know like from my perspective she's not wrong like tom clark's tom clark who's the moderator that they're making reference to 
did, I thought, a farcically bad job in that, uh, in that debate. Um, so I'll, I'll, I would say that. But I don't need to attack the guy. I don't think he's a Laurentian elite. He's a, okay, so, you know, because like, there's always this sense of tribalism. There's always this purity test, right? Tom Clark is a Laurentian elite. We didn't like him. And, 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 and Jean Charest, he's, a, he's a, actually a closet liberal. And he's, you know, so it's, everything is personalized. Everything is fangs out. Everything is as hard as it possibly can be. And, you know, like, I think there has to be some proportionality uh, to the fight you bring with those uh, that you disagree with. I mean, how else do you know? Like, if I treat everybody like Dracula and I just go around driving stakes right into everybody's heart, how do you know, like, okay, is it because you think they're actually going to kill you that you're doing that? Or is it just because you don't like what they suggested we have for breakfast off the menu? And so, you know, this harshness, this sharpness, this us and them, this divided world, mm-hmm. this purity test, the pure lane kind of, I, I think it's an, it, it, it's, it is all endemic of what I believe is grievance politics, anger politics, anger populism. This stuff is the most in, pronounced danger to our politics and our institutions that we've seen since I was a child in my entire lifetime. I think beating Pierre Polyev in the next general election is the most important thing that could be achieved in politics in my lifetime, because I think that his brand of politics is that bad. I think that what he represents Mm -hmm. is that damaging. And I think if you don't stop him and you don't defeat him and you don't take him out in Main Street, in full view of everybody, then what's going to happen is people will say that's the way to win and we'll get more of it. It'll be repeated. It'll be copied. And then our politics will be poisoned even further. Yeah. And I mean, we, we, we need not look further than south of the border to see what's playing out there with uh, with the January 6th hearings and with uh, the former president, Donald Trump, being still the perceived front runner for the, the Republican nomination. And should he run against Joe Biden, I wouldn't be surprised if he becomes president again, assuming he is even allowed to run for the presidency. But, you know, Mark, it's interesting. Uh, Scott Scott touched on something interesting there when he pointed to the the elite comment, the Laurentian elite comment, because that was the, that word elite was the one word in that that whole, you know, Twitter diatribe from from Jenny Bird that really just it, it didn't hit me well, because it, exactly to Scott's point, so much of his campaign has been about divisiveness, the, the, the liberal elite or the gatekeepers who are keeping us from our freedoms. And I think it's a dangerous type of politics. What, what's your reaction, Mark? Well, if, if, it's the if you're not with us, you're against us uh, scenario. This is the Donald Trump campaign playbook exactly. that they're playing. You go after the people personally, you know, whether you want to call them a leader or, as Scott said, Sharia, sort of a diehard and the whole liberal, uh, you know, hiding out with the Conservative Party. I mean, this is this is how he's done it. This this may have changed the way the playbooks are, are going to be going to be run in future campaigns. But having said that, and I'm not a conservative, I'm certainly not for, for uh, Polyev. If I was Polyev, I wouldn't go to the debate either. He's already mm-hmm. won. He's already won. So why are you going to go and give any oxygen or any airtime to any of the other candidates along the way? All he can do is hurt himself by putting his foot in the mouth at some point during the debate. That might hurt him. But he, he's already gotten enough uh, enough press out of, out of what, what Jenny Byrne uh, put out on Twitter that he's probably picked up more candidates along the way. So if I was him, I wouldn't bother. If you were an NHL hockey team and, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the 75th game of the season, you've made the playoffs, why would you put in your best players for the rest of the season for a fear of them getting hurt? It's no different for Polyev. 
He's already won. He's going to get this nomination. Brown is out of there. Sheree has run a really a horrible campaign and the others are so far behind. It's ridiculous. So why bother? Why bother doing it with, with the danger that he could you know, possibly hurt himself? So as much as I am not a conservative, I, I agree with this, with the decision not to participate. Can yeah, I just and it's, and it's, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. I was just going to add, like, I, you know, and again, Jenny is a, a, is a good friend of mine. And one of the reasons that we're such good friends is that I have immense respect for her professionally. Right. Like she is good at what she does and their decision mm -hmm. to not participate in this debate is the correct one. Right. Because there's always a lot of sort of, you know, institutional pressure. Oh, come on, do it. It's meaningless. It's pointless. It, 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 it I wouldn't subject the candidate, not because it's going to help anybody or harm his chances, but I wouldn't subject the candidate at this stage, um, you know, to the spectacle of uh, being attacked by his own, which is all that the other candidates can do. So I agree with that decision. What I don't agree with is, you know, the manner in which the, uh, the rejection was offered. I mean, I don't think I think you can say thanks. We're not coming uh, without saying thanks. We're not coming. And by the way, we burned down your barn. Uh, and it's you know, that's that's where like there's got to be some proportionality. Otherwise, people don't know how to measure uh, where you stand. Like if everything is DEFCON 5, then, you know, like. It starts to tell people that your character is a little uh, questionable. But but it worked for Donald Trump. Isn't that the brand? Is, it, it, hasn't it been proven to work? I mean, they don't care about what what is what, what is right and what is wrong. It's about getting votes, which is why this is a dangerous type of politics because they are grabbing at some dangerous. They're they're latching onto some dangerous ideas. Well, this is why I say that you've got to beat this kind of politics um, because when it's underestimated or dismissed. And I've been I've heard nonstop from people. If initially, when I said Polly would win this race, people told me, no, that's not possible. His brand of politics will never sell. Now I'm being told, well, listen, you know what? We're seeing why he can't win with the general election. He's got a high floor, but low ceiling, all this. Don't underestimate this stuff. The economy is lurching. Inflation is a government killer. There's all sorts of stuff to run against here. And Polyev knows how to execute a message. So, you know, to your point. Um, my view is you, you've got to wrestle this kind of politics to the ground and defeat it. Otherwise, people will say, oh, I see. That's the way to win. Be a knob. I was going to say a bad mm -hmm. word, but, you know, be this way. Be poisonous. Be venomous. Uh, treat everybody like they're an enemy and an enemy that must be crushed. Um, that's not what we need. Uh, we do not need that. And that's what we're going to get uh, more of unless this guy is stopped and stopped solidly. Mm -hmm. That's the voice of Scott Reed. Uh, the other voice you were hearing was Mark Mendelson. This voice is Tamara Cherry filling in for Amanda Galbraith on Free For All Friday coming up after the break. There are people boycott boycotting Canadian Tire for something it has been doing for years. What is that? Well, stick around to find out. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Today with special guest host Tamara Cherry. I promise this is the last you will be hearing from me this week. Famous last words, I'm sure, but given that it is Friday, I'm sure that it's probably the right thing to say. We're into our final segment of Free For All Friday with... 
Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator and former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin. Mark Mendelson, CTV crime analyst and former Toronto homicide detective. Uh, this is an interesting story um, unfolding on the East Coast. It kind of has me rolling my eyes a little bit, but I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say. People are boycotting Canadian Tire over one location sponsorship of an event in small town New Brunswick that many found to be problematic. The Canadian Tire logo was spotted on a flyer for a women's shooting event, prompting outrage from some who hadn't realized that the store sold guns, or as others are saying, quote, supported gun culture in the community. Question today is, is this a big deal? There were lots of people weighing in on Twitter who are now uh, boycotting Canadian Tire. There is one person whose handle I will not say on air because it could be it could be construed as not appropriate for uh, all audiences. Um, Canadian Tire has gone gun nuts on us. Do we want or need a gun culture in Canada? Very bad idea, Canadian Tire. Supporting a gun culture is just wrong and creates a bad image for legitimate, responsible gun owners who own them for the right reasons. Uh, another tweeter uh, tweeting out, Canadian Tire supporting gun lobbyists, lobbying events in, well, you know, Canada is nothing short of disgusting and frankly, very disappointing and it didn't go unnoticed. Someone thought it was a good idea. Fire them, Canadian Tire. And then finally, this tweet. Why is this unacceptable? This is being done in a safe and controlled environment and for women only. I will support a company that supports my wife's choice to improve and empower herself in a sport that requires skill, discipline, and focus. Canadian Tire has ensured my business. Interesting that that a logo on a poster has become such a polarized issue, especially when um, I, I don't believe it's every Canadian tire location. I think it goes franchise to franchise. Um, but I do believe some Canadian tire locations have been selling hunting equipment for years and years. Uh, Mark, I'll start with you on this one. Is, is this something being made out of nothing? Like are, are people overreacting or is this a legitimate issue we should be discussing? No, I think they're overreacting. Who, who lives in a small town in New Brunswick? And then finally realizes now that their local Canadian Tire, which is probably the Canadian Tire they've been going to for 20 or 30 years, sells, uh, sells firearms and ammunition. I mean, why is that a surprise to everybody? But to throw the phrase gun culture in there, I, I, if you're coming from a big city, I, I, I don't see the nexus. I mean, listen, I, mm-hmm. listen I, I'm, not a, I'm not a gun nut. I carried a gun for 30 years on the job. I have fired a gun more times than I care to think about. I don't like guns. I, I spend more time at autopsy tables looking at what guns do to people. Um, but I do also understand that there is a sport behind it, a very law-abiding people, men and women, who target shoot, um, who, who collect firearms, and, they're, and they're, they, they're lawfully obtained. They follow the rules of the law. Canadian tires following the rules of the law when they sell this stuff. This is, this is ladies' range day. They're not going out and shooting up deer and moose and bear. They're shooting in a range. It's a ladies' day. And, and Canadian Tire, the local one, which apparently has the authority to do these things without the sort of the blessing of corporate Canadian Tire, decided to sponsor um, you know, part of this event. This is a sport for these people. This is not the same gun culture that we live in in Toronto or in Vancouver or, or, in, or in Edmonton, where we've got gangs with guns, and we've got guns being smuggled into the country, and these are all, all illegally obtained, and they're used during the commission of other criminal offenses as well. These are a bunch of women who do this every year, 
and they do it safely and they do it legally and i don't understand what all the fuss is about this this is not promoting guns and gangs and gang culture and gun culture it's just Mm -hmm. not Scott, do you think that this is from a public relations perspective? Do you think this is something that corporate Canadian Tire should be paying much attention to? I, you know, look, it's always um, uncomfortable for a brand when it gets dragged into this kind of social media discussion. Um, but as far as I can tell, they didn't actually sponsor it. It's not even clear to me that the local uh, Canadian Tire franchise uh, sponsored it. I'm, I'm unclear on those facts, but I'm certain it didn't have a corporate sponsorship. Um, and look, you know. It, you know, I, I'm more or less where Mark is. Um, I do think some of the response is breathless. I mean, there are legal firearms that are being legally sold. Um, I, you know, my relationship with guns, not like Mark, I'm not a former cop. I never carried a sidearm. Um, I don't think I've even ever held a pistol, but, uh, and so I'm not, I'm not, I also find the whole idea of, you know, gun clubs, it's foreign to me. Um, but, you know, I come from rural Ontario. Uh, family has a hunting camp, you know, long arms. That's, you know, moose hunting and deer hunting in November. Like that's, that's part of the lifestyle. It's certainly going to be part of the lifestyle in rural New Brunswick, as long as people are competent, you know, and safe and law abiding. Um, I don't freak out about this. And I don't think that, you know, when people go, Oh well, my God, I can't believe that by selling firearms, Canadian tire is promoting gun culture that I don't, I don't buy that connection. And if I was advising Canadian Tire, I would say don't, don't, don't be, don't be shaken uh, by that assertion. Uh, that's, uh, I don't think that that's a mainstream perspective. I think that that's a, um, because if, if you're going to subscribe to that point of view, then you're fundamentally saying, I don't think that there should be any sale of any sort of firearm whatsoever in the, in the country uh, permitted. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that the thing that bothers me about these stories and and people's reactions like to this extent is that when you start talking about gun culture and roping this sort of stuff into it, it detracts from it distracts from the real issues when it comes to gun violence in Canada and that the issues when it comes to gun violence in Canada, by and large, have nothing to do with rifles being sold as hunting equipment at Canadian Tire and have a lot more to do with systemic issues like poverty, uh, systemic racism, and illegal firearms being brought over from the United States. But that said, I mean, this is a very important discussion, but we have something much more important to discuss. uh, And I think it's a topic that you both are probably looking forward to because it involves my childhood crush, Brad Pitt, wearing a skirt to film premiere. I I didn't see the big deal of this. But it got Sam, our producer, and myself wondering, do you guys think that you could pull off a skirt? Let, let's start with Mark. Mark can't. I'll answer for both of us. I'll answer for both. Mark cannot. I can. <laughs> I mean, it really comes down to, do you look more like Brad Pitt or less like Brad Pitt? <laughs> and so I'll look fine. I'll look fine. I, I look more like I look more like Dennis Farina, but that's a whole other story completely. Um, but, you know, but the fact of the matter is, and Scott hates to admit this, that I, I'm tall, so I've got long legs. OK, mm-hmm. and I, I think a little little taffeta outfit uh, would do me very well. He's practically and, Nicole Kidman. Yeah, practically. Almost. <laughs> yeah, very true. You know what's funny, though? The, the headline I'm looking at on this story, it says, Brad Pitt says wearing a skirt to film premiere, quote, is all about the breeze. But here's something that, especially when you talk about the heat that Toronto's been having of late, when I think about wearing a skirt, a dress, and not just shorts, I think about 
sweaty thighs rubbing together discomfort. I don't buy it. It was all about the breeze. I think it was all about the headlines, but you know what? Brad Pitt in a skirt. I'll take Brad Pitt wearing anything. So that's absolutely fine. As long as we're not talking about, uh, Scott Reed standing next to a, a vertical freezer in what are you wearing today? Scott boxers or a loincloth? Uh, a flowing long skirt. As a matter of fact, um, <laughs> oh, you're wrecking, you're wrecking my weekend. Tamara, Jesus. God, me here. Okay. Let's end it there before we get ourselves in trouble. Thank you very much, uh, Scott Reed, Mark Mendelson. It's been a slice. I'm Tamara Cherry in for Amanda Galbraith today. Amanda, as far as I know, I'll be back, back next week, but let's see. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening.